This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome to another edition of Wireless Books from the Athenaeum Mechanics and Institute Library broadcast at and from the lovely little Otago Access Radio Studios in the centre of Dunedin. And what a glorious studio it is. Mm, the sun we, is shining through. It's very exciting. It is. Also, uh, the Athenaeum Mechanics Oh, God, the Athenaeum. I've forgotten what it's called. And Mechanics Institute. Oh, yes. Such a mouthful. It's a library. Mm. It is a subscription library that you can quite happily join, as well as the public library. We complement each other. We do not cast aspersions whatsoever. Any library you want or both is lovely. And for just $69, including GST a year... A plethora of wonderful books. Well, awaits. the public library and myself, or the at the name, have been collaborating recently. I don't know if I told you. Um, there's, there's a now. What do they call her? The poet Laura Keat, rather than <laughs> <laughs> she loves parrots. Uh, she's a children's writer and poet, and. Uh, and she's um, basing herself in South Dunedin and she's um, got this project where she's um, going to various schools and encouraging children to write poetry. And uh, she, she did, they filmed the video um, publicising this in the Athenaeum because, of course, the public library, when we went back to Level 2, hurrah, still only had a limited amount of people could mm. go in at one time so they thought it would be easier to, to film in the in in the Athenaeum and once they've been there they've actually contacted me and asked to film again because they're doing another promotion and part of it has been filmed in the Wellington Public Library and apparently um, the to out the backgrounds will match pretty much. Ah, oh, how lovely! Yes, both yes got steeped in history. Hmm. Yes. Oh, that is wonderful. Oh, I like it. Oh, so, that's so, cheered me up no end. So there you go. That's We're going to be on the tally. <laughs> We're going to be on internet. We're going to be even better. We're going to be on the cyber cloud. That's right. We'll be we'll be floating Cyborgs. forever. <laughs> oh yeah. Once we're up in the cloud, you can never, never get, get rid, rid of us. <laughs> That's right. Now, last time I was halfway through talking about the Lansbury family, who, who, I just sort of stumbled upon them by an, uh, something in a hundred years ago on the ODT, and there's so much information about about three um, generations of the family, and I've talked about the eldest one, George, and I haven't quite finished talking about him because he had such a varied, interesting career. Now, he was the mayor of the borough of Poplar in the 1920s when they, they sort of had a, a tax revolt and they refused to raise um, money for to fund aspects of the city of 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 London like the um, the police and the asylum board and the water board and they felt that they were being unfa- they were raising an unfair amount of money in proportion considering they were such a poor borough and 
so they were sent to prison and they actually won in the end um, they were, it caused such a, a kerfuffle and people thought the government was being so unfair and especially imprisoning women and one of them was pregnant etc and so they won their case in the end and it was never really said the government didn't kind of say okay you're right and we're going to, we give in but they sort of quietly let them out and then they rewrote the act and made it more fair or equitable mm. so they they won but nobody nobody said oh, yes they've won <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> anyway they didn't mind now after that he went back and he had been an MP in the in 1903 etc and then he got into the war had happened he was actually a, um, a pacifist and then after he'd won won this, he sort of his um, profile was raised again. He went back into Parliament as a Labour MP. And the Labour Party actually became the government in 1925. It was, it was a very brief um, Labour government and he was denied office. And then he, in 1931, there was... They formed a national government and it was sort of a combination of all the parties and Ramsay MacDonald, who was the leader of the Labour Party, left the Labour Party to join this and he took a lot of his Labour MPs with him. But George Lansbury, he refused to leave the Labour Party and he, he stayed in the Labour Party, which was, became a small rump, and he was made he became the leader of the Labour Party. Um, I think we're going to sort of veer a little to the side and talk a little bit about Ramsay MacDonald. Have you ever heard of Ramsay MacDonald? Yes, because yes, he's very famous. Now, the the funny thing about Ramsay MacDonald, because he was the Labour Party, and the Labour Party called themselves a Socialist Party, and the and the royal family were absolutely terrified of Labour becoming the government, and they were terrified of having to meet a socialist. And, and they, the, the royal family are always um, so um, obsessed about how people dress and dressing appropriately. And so they were so worried about if if the socialists would be able to um, turn up in correct morning dress, etc. And I think they actually um, may they changed the rules so that they could just wear a, a suit rather than having to, because politicians like had to get into those um, you know those things that stop at the knee and all that sort of palaver. It was yeah, you know, it was really very antiquated. So they they. They changed the rules so that he could, that the Labour MPs could turn up in suits, that sort of thing, to meet the Queen, King and Queen. And so, after being so worried about it, George V and Ramsay MacDonald sort of fell in love with each other. And Ramsay MacDonald became a great friend of the royal family, and they always have him up to Balmoral because he was a Scottish man, and they sort of was sort of a, a working class person that they could understand and empathise with. Was sort of like this one of the the gamekeepers on their um, estate essentially mm. well that's what he probably reminded mm. them of so they became great mates and he was always popping up there and and the royal family just adored him and thought he was the most wonderful thing and that's sort of, sort of funny because they'd been so absolutely petrified of having to have you know they were just they had sleepless nights worrying about having to have a, a socialist prime minister and then when they finally got one they, they found he was their sort of socialist anyway God. Back to George Lansbury, who was holding the fort. He then, when the war came, he 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 was devastated because he was a pacifist and had actually been um, 
touring Europe and fighting for pacifism and he had to admit that his ideals had, to, had just come apart. But anyway, he was replaced in um, 1935 by Clement Attlee who became the new leader of the Labour mm-hmm. Labour Party and of course Clement Attlee became the Prime Minister after the Second World yep. War. And people, George Lansbury was just such a lovely man and had th- he had this courage of his convictions but he also was very, a very honourable man and he was actually described as the most lovable politician of the last century and oh. it just gives you an yeah. idea. Meanwhile his son Edgar who'd followed him into politics to an extent but he basic, he never became an MP he sort of stayed on um, borough things and he beca- mm. he was the mayor of, of the borough as well. Now I've told you that his first wife Minnie was um, died from um, catching pneumonia when she was in in Holloway Prison. Mm. It was very sad. Anyway, and they had no children. And he then, after a while, he married his second wife, and she was an Irish ex actress, Moira McGill. And I'm just going to ask you a question. Lansbury, does that name ring any bell? Angela Lansbury. As soon as you said Lansbury, the last show, I was thinking, oh, something on Angela Lansbury. I've been waiting for this moment. I am so glad there is a connection. Yeah. She was she was their oldest daughter of a second wife. And they, when the war happened, the Second World War, his wife was Irish and they had... The t- they had Angela was the eldest child, and they had two twin sons, and they went to the, they were evacuated to the United States, and that's how they ended up in. Oh. And of course, being an actress, she was um, drawn to Hollywood, oh. so that's how they started. Um, she got into that, and of course, Ansborough Langsbury has had a very long and illustrious career mm-hmm. but there's something very, a very touching thing that links back to his first wife Minnie who had been a counsellor and had worked for the suffragettes in fact there's um, there's a statue of um, I think it's Sylvia Pankhurst in London now and on the plinth there are names of of women who helped her You mean Emily Pankhurst? No I think it was Sylvia her daughter who was also a great suffragette any, oh, but so oh yeah okay carry on yeah, yeah. and Minnie is one of the names on that pla- on the on the plinth oh, mm-hmm. as well as um, one of George Lansbury's daughters so they were they were very involved in the suffragette movement anyway the um, the the council or the borough that she had been a councillor for they in in memory of her they they put up a clock a four sided clock and it's quite a quite a pretty thing mm-hmm. and it was. Um, it was renovated in 2018, her memori- the Mini Lansbury Memorial Clock. It's on um, Bow Road. And part of the money for that was provided by Angela Lansbury. Oh, that, that is, is lovely. That, that is, is so nice. Yeah. Oh. They just seem like such a lovely yeah. family. And they you know, they fought for what they believed and they suffered. And... Um, yeah, they've come through. Oh, just thought, well, oh, what a how s- heartwarming, Christine. Yes. Should we have a sting before you get on to the order of the day? Which, by the way, before you start on anything else, book reviews. <laughs> of course. <laughs>
Lead on, McDuff. For information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Welcome back. Now, when I came in, Beth said to me how great the books I'd given her last time were, and she just didn't think I'd be able to top them. And I think I will be able to. And I'm going to show you the first book, and you're going to hear her squeal with delight. I'm not a pig. Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> it's the latest Leanne Moriarty, and it's called Apples Never Fall. <laughs> yes, you are the lucky person who gets to have it. Oh, I love being special. <laughs> It's the story of a, a family and the... Oh, pa- I get it. Apple never falls... The apple never falls far from, from the, the tree. tree. Got you. Yeah. And they're a family that... Um, the the parents were great tennis players and they met through tennis and they when they got married and had four children who all played tennis and they actually ran a coach a tennis coaching academy mm-hmm. and so tennis has been their entire life in a lot of ways and one of their sons was a very talented player and and they had great aspirations for him but he he he, he just wasn't interested and the father had sort of vaguely hoped that he would um, one day take over the academy but he he went off and mm-hmm. became um, something in finance you know a, one of those sort of people. He did very well, but it was sort of always a sort of a bone of contention. Mm. And so there's all these sort of family um, tensions and such. And I mean, they all love each other, but they sort of, in a way, don't understand each other very well. And the parents are happy, but um, anybody, you know, anybody you've been living with for forty years or so, there's things happen, and um, and you have. Uh, resentments and um, you know all relationships go up and down so anyway the just before it opens a year before we they started they had an unexpected um, house guest this woman this young girl just turned up on, on their doorstep and they invited her in because um, the parents that's the sort of people they are they're sort of very old-fashioned or you know they sort of think that's still the 60s and she sort of, this young woman lived with them for a while and caused a bit of problems and then she then she disappeared again and so things sort of limp al- along and then the mother joy um she just disappears she's there one day and the next day she's gone and the the father doesn't know what's happened to her and and the children well first of all they're worried and then they sort of it's, things seem to be a bit suspicious about their father like he has a scratch on his cheek and um and the neighbor who has um who has um, a camera trailed on the street, picks up this footage of, of him carrying a heavy bundle and putting it in the back of his car. And it just all seems suspicious. And the police start nosing around and, and you know, what's happened to Joy and, and has he done something to her? And we, you know, you'll have to read to find out. Oh, good. I thought you were going to give me the ending as well. Thank you. No, I mean, that's just the very, very start. Very good. I love the cover as mm, well. Yeah. I could pick those apples off and eat them. It's beautiful. Beautiful cover. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, it's it's good. It's up to her normal standards. Oh, good. Now, I'm going to give you something else, which I actually think is one of the best thrillers that I, or, yeah, murder mystery that I have read in a long time. I absolutely adored it, and I hope you do too, because 
amazingly enough, I started it and, and kept going because it's so good. And it's by, now I can never pronounce Shari Lapena. Yeah, mm. Shari Lapena. And she's written quite a bit, and we have all her other books because um, I've got a member who really loves her. And I've never really rated her that much. I thought she's okay. This one is a doozy. Oh, my Ooh. goodness. It really, it's, wow. This is another <laughs> one about families. It's about the, the parents. The father is, he's a he's a millionaire, a multimillionaire. Mm. It's an American family. And they live in a swanky house and sort of in a, you know. A, a swanky neighbourhood. Yeah, mm-hmm. swanky neighbourhood. And a swanky town. Yeah. Yeah. And the child, his children, he has... Three children. He actually, well, we're going to find out more. But he has three children: two, an oldest girl, a boy, and then another girl. And they're all, in some ways, disappointments to him. The, the oldest girl is a doctor, and they should they should be really proud of mm. her. But they're starting to make comments about her not having grandchildren, and she's actually um, having fertility problems, and it's very hurtful for her. Mm. The son, the father had this robotics company, this very high-tech robotics company, and he insisted that his son did a business degree, and, and the son's worked for him in the company, and the son isn't, doesn't have the business brain of his father, but the father never tires of pointing this out to him. And a year before the action starts, the father decided... He got an offer for the company, and he's been stringing his son along with this. You know, the son's always thought, "Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to take the company over when my parents die," sort of thing. And the father sold the company because it was such a good offer. And then he never tired of telling his son because he did it because he knew the son would would ruin the company when he if he got a chance. Yeah. It's just I want to murder him myself. Yeah, he's yeah. he's a horrible man. And the youngest daughter, she she's got she's quite feisty and um, stands up to them a bit. But she's an artist and she she relies on the, a generous um, allowance that she's given. And so each year they have a dinner, an Easter dinner, and it's always horrible, always, you know, terrible frictions and stuff. And they, so the the children arrive with, they've all got partners, and the partners are all dreading it. (laughs) And it is, it's a disaster, and um, in fact it sort of implies before everyone has the chance to even get to the dessert, and everybody sort of storms off in a half. And later that night, both parents are murdered. And it's staged as if it's a robbery, but it soon becomes clear that it's somebody who knows the family and knows their routines. Now, they have a housekeeper who actually started working off for them as the nanny, so she knows the children very well. And she finds the, finds the, the parents, and her first action is there's a knife Lying on the on the kitchen floor, and she picks it up and cleans it and puts it back in the knife block. <laughs> so she becomes a suspect, and and then there's all these um, there's just extra there's problems with the will because the father had actually been planning to change his will, and people and the people that knew about it had were expecting to come to get a lot of money, and but they, the murder happened before the will could be changed, and all that sort of thing. So there's just the suspects on every page really and it just it's really twisty and and really the family is just such a weird family and um, what does it say someone in this house could be dangerous no it's 
more of it. In this family, everyone is keeping secrets, even the dead. And that's true because the father's got all these secrets and the mother as well. And the children have got their own secrets. And they could, they sort of gang up on each other and they sort of, they they think they're trying to, first of all, they're trying to, they protect what, trying to protect somebody mm-hmm. who they think think it is and then then when it looks like maybe it's not them they turn on the on the other and it's just it's really it's a great book and if you don't like it I just wonder what's wrong with you (laughs) right thank you no pressure now this one is the latest Val McDermott 1979 and she started, this is going to be the start of a new series. She's got a character oh, who, fab. Ellie Burton, Burns at least, who is a journalist. She's a young journalist and she's trying to, um, you know, make her way in the newsroom. But mm. of course it's 1979 and things are still pretty sexist and, uh, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's, she's in Scotland and she's... Her and another journalist um, team up together, and they're trying to they're covering uncovering a, a story of um, financial misappropriation, and they start working together and um, digging around corruption and whatnot, and um, maybe they dig too deep because um, it becomes dangerous. Oh. Well, I should hope so. Otherwise, <laughs> there'd be no point, would there? <laughs> How lovely! Thank you. Well, I have to say. Three out of three for me. Thank yes. You. And the last one is you probably won't want it, but no, this is going to go I've out. Looked at it. No. This is going to go out the door like crazy because um, this is the latest Louise Penny, and um, it's book number seventeen. And honestly, I just people pick up Louise Penny, and I say, oh, I think maybe you should start the first book, and they just they read her all the way through. I've got I've actually got three people reading her through at the moment. It's quite complicated trying to get them all in the right <laughs> order. <laughs> <laughs> and one, and the person who started first is a slow reader, and, like, oh. and the next person is quite a fast reader. I'm trying to, I'm trying to and I have to, I'm probably going to have to say to him, "Oh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait a little bit now." Oh, and number seventeen is called "The Madness of Crowds," yes. and ain't that the truth? And she's obviously taken. Um, this is one. Uh, a post-COVID novel. She's she's actually um, making out that vaccination has has just made the prop the COVID go away, mm. which unfortunately it yeah. hasn't. Mm. But um, so in an ideal world, yes, ideal world. well, mm. but the fact that you know how lots it tends to be a conservative side, but. Um, a lot of people are talking about, oh, well, we can't eliminate it. We've just got to live with it. And we've just got to accept that that old people and people with a vulnerable health, they're just going to be chucked in front of the bus and we'll just have to live with that. Um, sort of the David Seymour argument of life. Mm-hmm. And they so she's taken that argument and she's got a person, one of the characters in the book is a professor who is arguing that... She's. Re- I think she's basically arguing for compulsory euthanasia, which is pretty. Oh, so, so. Yeah. I might like this Louise Penny book after all. I might start at number seventeen, <laughs> forego the first sixteen. Mm, well, mm. so anyway, this. So you've got this person with controversial views who yep. is giving a lecture, and so the the hero of the book, um, Chief Inspector Armand. 
Oh, I won't keep you going. Um, <laughs> he's been asked to provide a control, crowd control. It's called a statistics lecture. But he is dubious. Why ask the head of homicide to provide security for what sounds like a minor, even mundane lecture? But it's dangerous ideas about who deserves to live in order for society to thrive. And so it's sort of becoming, it's quite popular, but of course, it's the sort of thing where people like to get together and shout mm. at each other from mm. very, from each side of the room. And of course, mm. a bit like Parliament. Mm. Mm, well, just like any sort of demonstration mm. you have, really. So, yeah, so this is this is happening, and people are all jostled, jostled up, and of course, something happens. And mm. um, yes, hello, murder. Yeah, not euthanasia, but murder. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe it's a murder by somebody who believes oh, in euthanasia. Oh, that sounds quite a quite a heavy book. Yeah, very good. well done, you, Louise Penny. Look, I will once the uh, reader brings back the first Louise Penny. I think I might try it. I might give her a whirl, Bill. Oh well, I might might hold you at your word. Then you'll be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I can read highbrow stuff too. It's not just all the. All the oh, I don't know that she is. Murder, murder. I know that she is highbrow. Um, oh, in that case, I'll yeah. definitely enjoy her. Yeah. I mean, she's oh, she's almost like a cosy murder story. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I like it. And and it's funny because she's got this remote village um, called Th- I think it's called Three Pines, and it's all very picturesque. And there's a oh, it's very Saint Mary Mead. Now, where have I? Well, in that setting, it mm. sort of is. I mean, one of the characters is a famous poetess who's um, who wanders around the town carrying a duck. <laughs> oh, very Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's about the log of wood. Anyway, yes, a lot we of need quirk to, to it. We need to leave it there. But I, in two weeks' time, I look forward to the first Louise Penny that I would ever have read. Number one. Okay, I will. I will. I will Honor provide. Yes. Okay, lovely. <laughs> Until next time, everyone. Happy, Happy reading. reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room, and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information, or pop into the Athenaeum Library at Number Twenty Four, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.